Thank you for inviting me to the, um, uh, this seminar series. What I want to do in this talk is to um, give you an overview of the Kimberley process, explain why it's developed, what are the main impetus behind it. Um, I'll give a sort of a brief introduction to the actual the structure of the diamond industry, um, and then how the issue emerged, and um, who, who are the forces that put it onto the table, um, and why, was it, why, why did it become an actual process. Um, and then I want to finish with, uh, and, and then talk about how it actually works, of course, and then finish with some questions as to whether it's working or not. Um, and specifically, I'll, I'll be, I'll be uh, coming to, the, country, to the, the case of Zimbabwe, what's going on in Zimbabwe at the moment, um, and highlighting some of the problems associated with what's basically a voluntary um, mechanism for um, ethical consumer um, issues and, and also industrial issues as well. And I, I came, I, I got interested in, in the Kimberley process when I was, when I was living in Botswana, and um, this is in the early 2000s, and the whole issue of, of, of blood diamonds started, started to seriously worry the government in Botswana because they were afraid that um, their diamonds, which they said were clean diamonds, were going to be um, tarnished by the whole Africa, sort of, you know, all diamonds from Africa are, are dodgy, basically. And so, so Botswana, Namibia and South Africa uh, came together to try and um, protect their industries. And this, this then gelled with NGOs from Canada, actually. A lot of, a lot of the impetus was from Canada. Um, so, but it has been quite a controversial process. And there, there are some problems associated with it. So let's, let's go through this. Okay. First of all, the Kimberley... Um, process, certification scheme, or just called the Kimberley process, um, is one of the first serious attempts to try and regulate um, natural resources, right? Um, and particularly respond to a specific issue, okay? Um, which is, the issue is the illegal trafficking of diamonds from conflict-driven areas, uh, or, or, or from conflict areas. And we'll, we'll return to this, and perhaps we can just also talk about this in the discussion, because the definition is quite narrow, right? And this opens up all sorts of questions as to what exactly is a blood diamond, what is a conflict diamond. Um, if there isn't a war, is it still a blood diamond, this type of thing? Uh, and there is increasing pressure on the Kimberley process by NGOs to try and broaden this definition. And of course, the industry itself is, is fighting a rearguard action to try and stop this because it opens up all sorts of questions about ethical trading, consumer rights, um, process, etc., etc. Now, it was officially launched in, in January 2003, right, but it goes back to, uh, the, the process really begins about 1998, um, and as it says, says there, it's an international agreement adopted in consensus um, by governments, civil society, and the industry. So it's quite a, quite a unique process, or quite an interesting process, how it got onto the agenda and how it's been accepted. Now, the diamond industry itself um, is particularly important for Africa, because about 65% of global diamonds, th these are natural diamonds, of course, not industrial diamonds, but 65% um, come from Africa. So it's a big issue for, for African countries, and it's specifically a big issue for South Africa, Botswana, and Namibia, whose um, industries, whose, whose GDP is made up, um, particularly Botswana and Namibia, by quite a large percentage of, of its diamond exports. And it's worth about $13 billion uh, per year in rough diamonds. Now, the, 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 the diamond industry itself is structured um, so that there are basically five stages of processing. And it's this processing 
and these stages which the Kimberley, Pro Kimberley Diamond process is trying to address and to try and make sure that this process is, is legitimate. Okay. First of all, you have the mining and the purchasing okay, of the rough gemstones, and this will vary between um, alluvial diamonds, which are diamonds which you can find in riverbeds, and that's the, basically the, the core of the problem associated with blood diamonds, and then um, the more traditional type of diamonds, which you get from the mines in South Africa, Botswana, and, and, and Namibia, etc. Okay? Now, De Beers traditionally played a very strong role, and it, st it still plays a very strong role in the diamond industry, and it was De Beers which was the target of civil society pressure um, at the time of the Kimberley process. However, their cartel has now basically been um, broken up or is, it has been uh, dismantled, largely due to the, uh, the effect of diamonds from Russia and the um, former Soviet Union entering the market. But De Beers has, has got, a, and it still plays a major role, um, although it no longer has these cartel ambitions, or it says if officially it no longer has these cartel ambitions. You then get the, the, the sorting process, Okay, um, and a huge amount of this goes to Antwerp. We'll come on to this in a second because this was actually quite an important uh, deciding factor, the, the, the fact that it goes to Antwerp. So about 80% of rough diamonds and about 50% of polished stones go through Antwerp. And then other diamond centres are in London, Bombay, Tel Aviv. The Israelis, we were talking earlier, are quite active in this industry. Johannesburg, um, Haberoni in Botswana now has its own ambitions to be a, a diamond processing um, center. So then the diamonds are cut and polished. Um, only the real um, high-valued stones nowadays go to, go to sort of um, New York. Um, most, most of the sort of normal diamonds, which you'll get in the, in, in the, uh, in the, in the jewelry shops uh, in the high street, they probably would have been polished in Bombay, and that's purely because of uh, cost. Okay? You then get the manufacturing of the jewelry, and the marketing and the retail. Now, what's important is the Kimberley process is pr primarily involved on the first two stages, okay? So the first two stages, the mining, so where do you get the diamonds from, and then how the, are so how the stones are sorted, um, and this is when they enter really the international market, okay? So that, that's, that's the Kimberley process is aimed at those first two stages of this overall process. Okay, so what are the origins of the Kimberley process? Well, back in the late 1990s, um, as Jennifer said, um, it, this bega began to be an issue on the uh, international agenda. Nowadays, it's, um, of course, with Leonardo DiCaprio's film, and um, it's, it's much more of a, of a hot topic, but if you cast your mind back to, 19, to 1996, if you can do that, um, diamonds and blood diamonds it was simply not an issue. It was not on the agenda of, of any... Um, debate or anything like that. So it really came from nowhere and it was, it's quite an interesting process of how a norm uh, in international relations uh, became developed, embedded and then entered into um, uh, institutional frameworks and, and uh, international cooperation. Okay. So basically what happened was 1996-1997 a, a London-based NGO called Global Witness started to investigate the diamond industry and the context of this was Angola. Right? And Global Witness very quickly identified um, stories, but basically what was happening after the end of the Cold War, UNITA lost its, its um, American and South African support uh, in the Angolan Civil War. Yet they continued to, to fight a very strong and powerful um, campaign against the Angolan government. Right? 
So the question was, well, where are these guys getting their money from? Because they're not getting it from the CIA anymore, and they're not, getting, they're not being backed up by the South Africans, and they seem to be out in the bush in um, eastern Angola, so where are they getting their money from? And Global Witness and, and, and other uh, investigators very quickly decided or found out through investigations they were getting them from diamonds. Right? And at this point in time, the Angolan civil war was hotting up, um, it was costing um, billions of dollars, thousands of people's lives, and it became quite clear that diamonds were playing a major role in fostering the Angolan civil war and allowing UNITA, under Jonas Savimbi, to continue this campaign. Okay? So Global Witness was particularly concerned with diamonds in Angola, and their report came out saying that numerous diamond companies and diamond importance centres continue their operations and this was the important bit which Global Witness wanted to target, which the Kimberley process has successfully targeted, without fear that consumers or governments question their actions. Okay? Um, so that was Global Witness's role in the, in, in the, thing, in the uh, process. Um, we'll return to them in a second. This bit here, without fear that consumers or governments would question their actions. Um, as I say, I used to live in Botswana and uh, I used to have some friends and one of them was involved in the diamond industry. Uh, working for, for Debswana, which was the um, company formed by De Beers and the Botswana government for uh, diamond exploration in, in Botswana. And I remember him telling me that before he joined Debswana, uh, he was employed by De Beers, um, he, he was a South African, he was employed by De Beers to fl basically fly around Central and West Africa, uh, literally a, a bag of cash, and they would set up an office in somewhere like Guinea or in the DRC or wherever, and they would just buy diamonds, no questions asked, from anyone who came into, into, the, um, into their office. And this was at the time when De Beers was operating this cartel. Right? And I, I remember saying to him, um, well, didn't you ever ask any questions about where these diamonds were coming from? And he said, and this is a guy from De Beers, specifically said to me, no, we are told, don't ask any questions, just get hold of the diamonds, buy them, to, to stop them going onto the international market. Right. So this is the type of situation back in the late 1990s where diamonds, didn't matter where they come from, whether they're clean or whatever, was going onto the market um, with the connivance of De Beers, allegedly, I should say, because um, I wasn't being filmed. Uh, <laughs> uh, allegedly, with the connivance of De Beers, and uh, this was a situation which the Kimberley process and, and, uh, started to tackle, and which this was a process which, or this is a situation which Global Witness and other NGOs decided needed to be changed. Okay, now the context of this was, uh, was that in 1998, um, Diamonds came onto the issue of the Security Council and resolutions were passed to try and put an embargo on um, diamonds coming from Angola, or diamonds which were not certified by, by the Angolan government. And this was a, an attempt to try and bring some type of closure to the civil war and to try and deal with this issue which Global Witness had, um, had identified. However, it was basically ineffective. It was also involved with Sierra Leone, perhaps you can come back to that. Um, but in December 1998, Global Witnesses report, uh, a rough trade, the role of companies and governments in the Angolan conflict specifically targeted De Beers. And this was very embarrassing for De Beers, okay? And we'll go on to that in a second why. There was basically a failure by the UN and by the European Union um, to make sure that its member states were, were, were um, fulfilling their obligations um, under the Security Council embargo. And what was particularly embarrassing for the European Union, for example, was that, as I pointed out, that Antwerp is a centre. Antwerp remains a centre of the, of the diamond industry, and it's about half an hour's drive from Brussels. 
So it's clear that blood diamonds were still going through Antwerp, even though the, 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 the UN and the European Union had alleged, allegedly had measures against this. And yet you could just drive half, half an hour away from EU headquarters who were issuing all these statements saying that they're dealing with the problem. And you could, you could get first-hand exposure to the reality that nothing was really, really changing. So, uh, an NGO coalition called Fatal Transactions was formed, um, and this brought together Global Witness and a, a bunch of other people, uh, the D Dutch, Medico International, etc. And they started a rather damaging public awareness campaign um, about blood diamonds. Okay, I say it's damaging, damaging for the diamond industry. And the diamond industry was then, and this is how the diamond industry got on board, they started to realise that this is a potentially disastrous uh, situation for them as information about blood diamonds began to be um, entered the public domain as the media campaign by the by the fatal transaction coalition and, and others partnership africa canada i'll come on to them in a second um, began to really raise this issue and began to ask questions about the diamond industry um, it became towards the end of the 1990s there was a real fear within the diamond industry that diamonds were going to go the same way as fur Right? In other words, that uh, just as fur was once a symbol of wealth and whatever it was it used to be in those days, um, it very rapidly became out of fashion because it seemed to be associated with cruelty, etc. And diamonds, because they have no intrinsic, unless they're industrial diamonds, they have no intrinsic value, right? Uh, and they're very strongly associated with, ro with romance and, and the value that, that diamonds have comes from the marketing, the very clever marketing um, schemes of the beers, etc there was a real fear that diamonds would go the way of fur. So the, the diamond companies, um, De Beers, but also um, other, the, jewel, the jewelry industry, etc., started to realize that this was a major problem. So, and this is a typical poster. This is Amnesty International's poster, which they had in France, but there's all sorts of posters that they, that they had highlighting the link between diamonds and violence, in Af specifically in Africa, and bloodshed. Okay? So a major part of, this, of, the, of the focus of these NGOs was to focus on consumer rights and the ethics of buying diamonds from blood, um, of the ethics of buying blood diamonds or buying diamonds that may have come from um, conflict zones. Okay? And, and fatal transactions urged the, urged the public to directly contact De Beers or to directly walk into, their, into the local jewellery shop and ask, where did that diamond come from? Can you prove it's not from Angola? Can you prove that's not from Sierra Leone? Can you prove that this diamond is, is not financing conflict in Africa? And of course, at, at, that, point, at that stage, De Beers couldn't do that. Jewellery shops couldn't do that. So it was really opened up a Pandora's box, a, a, a serious problem for the industry as to the ethics of selling products which they couldn't really actually guarantee that they weren't directly involved in um, uh, conflicts or war. Okay? The response of De Beers was quite interesting. Um, within a very few weeks of the campaign being launched, De Beers quickly said that they were, were no longer buying diamonds from Angola, right? Um, which of course raises the question, why did they need a consumer boycott or a threatened consumer boycott or NGOs to, to ask them why they're buying blood diamonds? But anyway, I'm sure that they'll have a reason. Um, and De Beers stated it would be reviewing its diamond purchases from places like Guinea and the DRC. Guinea was, as I said, was, was the place where my, my friend used to sit in Conakry and uh, get buy things which 
allegedly came from Guinea, but probably came from Liberia or Sierra Leone. Okay. And the beer's managing director, of course, issued a very stern and serious um, statement saying that the, the beer shared the world's deep concern over um, the continued suffering of the people of Angola. Now, of course, the context of this is the war in Angola has been going, had been going on, sin, on since 1975. Diamond exports had been involved in perpetuating the war for much longer uh, than fatal transactions or um, global witness had been involved, had, had, had sort of drawn attention to. So and De Beers had known this, I, allegedly De Beers had known this. So, um, you know, you have to ask a, a couple of questions. But anyway, and he, he also said he was concerned that uh, some of the funds, just a few of them, might have um, been used by UNITA. Okay. Now this is where the Canadians come in and they, they strongly um, Partnership Africa-Canada played a major role in this because they broadened the focus. Initially, the focus was on Angola. Sierra Leone was kind of in the background, but Partnership Africa-Canada really put Angola, um, the issue of Sierra Leone, sorry, on the map with their report, um, the heart of the matter, Sierra Leone, Diamonds and Human Security. And the heart of the matter was the role of diamonds in perpetuating the civil war in Sierra Leone. And as you know, the, the war in Sierra Leone was particularly brutal, uh, particularly horrific. Right, and so, so this was further pressure, okay? And they demonstrated that conflict diamonds was clearly a, a pan-continental problem. It was not just simply linked to Angola, as De Beers kind of tried to um, imply, and that everything else was, was, was okay. And Partnership Africa-Canada actually came out and said they, they thought about 15% of global trade uh, in the diamond industry, of di global diamond trade, uh, involved blood diamonds. Okay, now if you think back to what the um, I can't remember what the figure was at the start, it was billions, then 15% of billions is quite a lot, right? So, and they, they showed that the, the, how their the, the report showed, and, and the person who wrote this or edited this was uh, Ian Smiley. Uh, yeah, Ms. Ian Smiley, uh, who will return because he's actually resigned from the Kimberley process, but we'll, we'll get onto that in a sec. So Ian uh, wrote this report, uh, or certainly put, put it together, he put his name on it, um, and he showed how the war had basically become a, a, a stunt for all sorts of extremely dubious characters from Sierra Leone and, and other parts of Africa, but also uh, Russia, Israel, etc., etc., to basically um, make a lot of money out of, out of blood diamonds uh, in Sierra Leone. And then the US congressional hearings on conflict diamonds um, upped the ante in May 2000 by issuing a, a, a report on the same thing. So you can see how it started as, a, as an NGO issue, and then it very quickly very, very quickly, actually, it was starting to be heard in, in Congress and industry had to respond, okay? There was a report by Robert Fowler, again, a Canadian, um, who re reported his findings to the, to the UN, this, this, uh, the Fowler report, and he really put the, the, um, the nail on the head, uh, or, or nail on the coffin of UNITA's role in, in, in um, diamonds, um, saying that they were able to continue financing. So despite all these pressures, the UN clearly had limited powers of enforcement. And this again upped the ante, okay? And what, what Fowler did, which was very interesting, was, um, which was not very diplomatic of him, but it did work, was he actually set out to name and shame those companies and, and those countries involved in this process, okay? And even individuals. So everyone started running for cover because when the Fowler reports, and Fowler started to try and um, out people. 
Okay, so the Kimberley process. This goes back to Botswana, Namibia, and South Africa. As this was going on, Botswana, well, the countries which had clean diamonds, basically the ones in Southern Africa, um, although there was the issue of, of the, the Bushmen, which, which we can perhaps discuss in the discussion, but anyway. Um, those three countries basically felt very, very vulnerable, and they thought, hang on, there's this international campaign going on about blood diamonds in Africa, um, and consumers in London or Oxford High Street are not going to be differentiating between blood, diamond, blood diamonds or, or diamonds from Botswana and diamonds from, from Sierra Leone. We have a real serious problem here. Our whole entire economy could be, very, could be wrecked if diamonds goes the same way as fur. So Botswana, Namibia and South Africa came together and they started something called the Kimberley Process uh, in May 2000. Um, as a, as, a, as a conscious attempt by them to say, our diamonds are clean. And Botswana, for example, started a, a PR campaign uh, overseas called Diamonds for Development, highlighting how diamonds had um, lifted Botswana from basically nothing to middle-income country, this type of thing. Okay. The World Diamond Congress also got in on the act, so the, so the industry itself, uh, this is other than De Beers, uh, the industry um, began to try and um, strengthen the industry or, or, or show that the industry was interested in strengthening uh, the sale of block diamonds. And they called for, and this was very interesting, the World Diamond Congress called for legislation in all countries um, to only accept officially sealed packages. And we'll come on to this because this, this fits into um, the Kimberley process or the Kimberley certification process because it's certification which is the heart of the management of, of blood diamonds. Okay? For countries to impose criminal charges on anyone tracking in conflict diamonds, um, okay, and instituted the ban on any individual found trading in conflict diamonds. Okay. Of course, the question again could be asked about, about these guys and the industry in general is why was it only in 2000 that they're doing this? But okay, they're doing something. Okay. This culminated December 2000s in the, the General Assembly passing a resolution. Um, to mandate an expanded Kimberley process, so got the, the Kimberley process got an official seal of approval from the United Nations. Um, January 2001, the World Diamond Council was formed, again as a direct response to draft a new process where all diamonds could be um, certified as coming from, from conflict-free um, areas. Okay. And after, after two years of negotiations, about November 2002, um, the UN, the government, the NGOs, the diamonds producers, etc., et created something which we now know as the Kimberley Process Certification Scheme, or KPCS. Okay. And the KPCS was officially launched in January 2003. Okay. It was backed up by a UN Security Council Resolution um, 1459, which was adopted at the end of January. Okay. And the UN, UN um, Security Council expressed strong support for the KPCS. Okay. And they talked about how important it was to prevent um, conflict and to ensure that diamonds played no role in the furthering of, 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 um, of, of wars and conflict, specifically in Africa. Okay. They also recognised, which was thought, thought was quite interesting, the UN specifically recognised that the KPCS was a, a direct result of civil society and industry coming together. Um, and they talked a lot about consensus, etc. Now, What's important here, of course, is this voluntary aspect. It's a voluntary self-regulation process. And we'll, we'll go into how it works in a second. But the UN did welcome this system. 
And this is a, a Kimberley process certificate if you want to buy this is something from Liberia. And this is what it looks like. Um, and if you, even if you go to Monrovia now, you, you can, if you walk into um, diamond merchants, they'll have certificates on the walls saying that they're, they're clean dealers. Okay, same in, in Freetown, in Sierra Leone. Okay, so how does it operate? How does the Kimberley process work? First of all, countries which have signed up to it pass legislation, okay, to enforce the Kimberley process. Control, control systems are then put in place for the import and export of rough diamonds. Okay. Participants in the Kimberley process must only trade in rough diamonds with other participants, so they can't be third-party uh, import, importations. Okay. The KP participants, which is basically the government and, and the, uh, the observers, which are essentially the NGOs, the concerned NGOs, and the diamond industry meet once a year to review the process, to see how it's working, is it not working, this type of thing. Um, apparently they're meeting in Jerusalem today, um, so. And working groups um, put together by the, by, the, by the process monitor participants' implementation of the scheme. Um, they look at the technical issues, is it working, is it not? Uh, they analyse statistics and it's all on the website, on, on, the, on, on the Kimberley Process website and you can see there's a lot of documentation coming out uh, about is it working or not? And, and, the diamond, and the diamond industry is very, very keen to tell you it's working and it's, uh, it's a fantastic success. Okay, but is it working? The KPCS reckons that it's, it's 49 members, member states, reckons that they account for basically all of the diamond industries, uh, of um, global diamond industry, okay? 99.8, they, they say, okay? However, it's true that Partnership Africa Canada, which is, uh, has retained a very strong interest in this, says that now blood diamonds is less than 1%. Okay, so it has, it has definitely worked in lessening um, diamonds from uh, conflict areas. Of course, a cynic would point out that, well, that's because the war in Sierra Leone and Liberia and Angola has stopped. Right? So is it because the Kimberley process or is it because these actual conflicts have stopped? Ian Smiley, who I mentioned was the author of the Partnership Africa-Canada report, actually resigned in 2009, um, last year, because he said it wasn't working. And he said he could no longer, in good faith, what you can see there, contribute to the process, uh, to the pretense that it's success. Uh, and he pointed out that Kinshasa government has got no idea when it, where its diamonds come from, right? or rather the, um, the process of certifying the diamonds is, is problematic there. We come on to that in a second. Um, and he says there, they could be coming from Angola, Zimbabwe, or even from Mars. They're more likely to be coming from Angola. Okay. And a UN group of experts recently found that diamonds, the diamond trade in Cote d'Ivoire has been driving conflict and problems in that country. Okay. Going through Ghana, uh, being legitimated through Ghana, um, or through Mali, being, having certificates from the Kimberley process because the countries, uh, member countries, issue these certificates, and this is, this is a fundamental weakness, um, and these diamonds are then being passed off into the international market as coming from decent countries like Ghana, Mali, when in fact they might, come, might be coming from uh, conflict areas of, of Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast. Okay. So what, is one of the, what are the problems? First of all, 
any diamond from, from a country has to have a Kimberley certificate, right? And the aim is to have an audit trail. So you can basically, the idea is you have an audit trail, so you can trace where the diamond in the shop comes from and trace it all the way back and say, okay, this diamond came from this particular mine. And in, in an ideal world, that is how the Kimberley process would work, but it's not an ideal world. And the problem is you're, you're dealing with some very dubious governments and the capacity to implement these schemes is very, very problematic in countries where uh, government officials are corrupt, uh, where bribes can be, um, you know, can work wonders. Okay, and the government internal controls in countries like Sierra Leone, DRC, Angola are very, very weak and/or corrupt. And they're very weak and corrupt, of course, for a reason because the elites in these countries are in charge of neo-patrimonial regimes, uh, where corruption and um, utilization of state resources for state resources for private accumulation is, is the norm on which these regimes operate. So it's no surprise that uh, it's easy to get a certificate um, from these countries which sign off on uh, diamonds which may not even come from their own countries. Okay? Uh, one of the problems is that any decision taken by the Kimberley process has to be agreed by all of the governments that participate. Okay? There's a lot of talk about consensus, but this is a big problem when you have problematic governments who are signed up to this. Okay? So the question is, what happens when a member of the Kimberley process engages in illegal trading? Well, what happens is it undermines the entire, entire um, issue of management of conflict diamonds. In Smiley makes his point, however, that it's not the problem is, isn't just only in, in, in um, Africa. He makes a point that, as he says, if the United States, which is the biggest consumer of diamonds in the world, said to the Congo, um, okay, we're not going to allow you to import, we're not going to allow the importation of diamonds from the Congo. He says you'd see a huge amount of action take place in the Congo. So there is a lack of political will in Africa, but you, there's also arguably a lack of political will in the, in the developed world. Okay? But the real issue which is, has um, uh, thrown the, the Kimberley process, other than Cote d'Ivoire, the real issue which has thrown the Kimberley process into a state of crisis is the issue of Zimbabwe, and we'll finish with the issue of Zimbabwe, because this highlights up a whole or throws into, into focus a whole bunch of issues associated with the problems of the Kimberley process and how it, how it may or may not be improved. Okay. The issue in Zimbabwe, and I'll be like five more minutes and then, sure. yeah, okay. The, the issue in Zimbabwe centers around a, a diamond mine in Morangi, which is in eastern Zimbabwe. Okay. And until 2006, Morangi was owned by um, De Beers. Right? But De Beers didn't, had not exploited this, mine, this, um, this area because they felt that there, was, wasn't really, um, there wasn't much value in it. Um, and to be quite honest, they hadn't actually um, done a proper survey. Okay? But what happened was um, local Zimbabwean peasants who seemed a bit more savvy uh, suddenly worked out that actually there's a lot of alluvial diamonds uh, in this area. And as it says up there, about 30,000 uh, locals um, moved in and surveys showed that basically Morangi was producing, this is, this is with guys with pickaxe and, pickaxes and spades, right? But about $1.7 billion were coming out of Morangi every year, right? And as somewhat, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know, it's hilarious actually, uh, we perhaps didn't do as much surveying as we could have done. Uh, so De Beers kind of let that one slip. Um, I don't know, what goes around comes around, I guess. 
Now the diamond miners, these lot, this lot, um, as you can see, it's very disorganized quite, and quite dangerous. And it became much more dangerous when the Zimbabwean government took an interest. Um, they started um, selling their diamonds through Matari, which is on the old, in the old days it used to be called Umtali, which is on the border of Mozambique, right? And these diamonds were then smuggled across the border into Mozambique and they found their way into Johannesburg, to Johannesburg or Maputo, usually Johannesburg. And then from Johannesburg, they were flown to Europe or to Israel or whatever, okay? And they were sold as, as non-Zimbabwean diamonds, right? This is what Marangi used to look like uh, with, all, with all these, these peasants, okay? But of course, we have $1.7 billion coming out, of the, coming out of these holes every year. Uh, this is likely to attract the attention of people with guns. And the people with guns in Zimbabwe who count, of course, is the government. Right? And this is where we talk about the problems associated with the Kimberley process when it's governments who are signing onto this scheme and it's, it's all um, voluntary and self-regulatory. Okay? <coughs> Mugabe's government moved in at the end of 2008 uh, with an operator. Well, like, Mugabe always likes to issue these, um, have these operations, operation cleanups and whatever, uh, where they just bash the locals. And his operation this time was called You Won't Come Back. And You Won't Come Back uh, was, a, was a real... Um, threat because the army um, started shooting at the miners to get them out of the way. At least 200 miners uh, were killed, at least, they reckon, much more, right? Um, as soldiers cleansed Marangi of the peasants and moved in their, their own operations. Then what happened was that the officers of the Zimbabwe Defence Force then became actively involved. They basically got rid of the peasants and took over operations, and they became involved in, in this process, okay? And this, I thought this was quite interesting because, of course, Zimbabwe's got a coalition government, right? So Tendai Biti comes from the um, opposition, and he says, the government has not received a cent from the biggest find of alluvial diamonds in the history of mankind. So the government, or sorry, sources within the government openly came out and said that the government has taken over this mine, yet the government is not seeing any money. Where's the money going, okay? And the money, of course, is going to the usual suspects in Zimbabwe, which is the army chief, right, um, defence minister, the Gideon Gono, the governor of the central bank, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Mugabe, the usual list of rogues within the, within the ZANU-PF regime. And these, these people are all allegedly, I say for the camera, involved in the uh, diamond trade in Marangi, okay, um, or certainly profit from it. So what happened was... NGO campaign um, rose up, said this is absolutely appalling, you know, the Zimbabwean government is, is killing its own people. Um, they're now involved in, 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 in conflict diamonds themselves, even though there isn't actually a war going on in Zimbabwe. The, these are conflict diamonds. This is societal conflict, not, not um, organised violence in, in a war. Something's got to be done, okay? So what happened was in 2009, the Kimberley process actually suspended Zimbabwe. So you could say, well, that, that means it works, right? conflict diamonds, even though it was not from a conflict zone, but the Kimberley process suspended Zimbabwe. They couldn't, Zimbabwe could no longer sell diamonds on the international market. But it's not that easy or that simple because very recently, July 2010, Zimbabwe reached a deal where they promised that they would institute, institute um, regulations and, and, and mechanisms to stop what was going on in Marangi, um, and they agreed to a strict regime of monitoring and supervision. Now, of course, the people doing this strict regime of monitoring and supervision is the Zimbabwean government, right? So, okay. And in August 2010, they had an auction 
and about $72 million worth of, of Zimbabwean diamonds were sold. Yet all reports suggest that the smuggling of diamonds continues from Zimbabwe um, and it has not really been addressed by the Zimbabwean government. Why? Well, the reason why it's not been addressed by the Zimbabwean government is because of this, right? So. And, and, and what's interesting is that the Kimberley process has basically been unable to deal with this situation in a coherent fashion, okay? Um, the Zimbabwean government denies that this is happening and the Kimberley process is then found in a, uh, is in a bind because the Kimberley process is built on 49 states agreeing to regulate an industry. Well, what happens if one of those states, um, and quite honestly, amongst the 49, quite a few of these are like this, but what happens if one of these states is run by a bunch of crooks, right? And this, is, this goes to the heart of the sort of state sovereign system, international system, really, right? But it certainly strikes, strikes at the heart of the Kimberley process is you're relying upon governments to self-regulate themselves with, with the assumption that these are um, verbarian, rational, bureaucratic models where it, rule of law um, is in place. What happens when that state doesn't fit that bill or, does, or doesn't fit that description? Okay, and Zimbabwe would be one example. There's a whole bunch of others. And the, and the Kimberley process has, has really been exposed by the Zimbabwe situation. So, other than the sort of general technical issues, a key problem is that the Kimberley process was negotiated, it, it sprang from a desire to deal with the Angolan war situation, specifically an out-and-out -out war. That, that's one problem, okay? How do you deal with, with situations where there is not um, a black and white war going on, right, which is easy to try and to, to, to define. That's, that's the first problem. And the definition of blood diamonds is quite, as I said right at the start, is quite um, narrow. It's used by rebel movements to finance conflict, okay, aimed at undermining legitimate governments, right. Now, of course, we, let, you know, let's unpack this. What, what is a rebel movement? Well, re sometimes rebel movements can be fighting against illegitimate governments. What is a legitimate government? Well, what, you know, um, is it something which is recognised by the UN? Well, that's how the state system operates, but let's be honest here, a lot of governments in Africa, where the majority of diamonds come from, are not legitimate, right? So there's a problem here. And, and the, the key question is, what about governments? And Harare is a good example of this, where, hu where the government is involved in systematic human rights abuses and is involved in the diamond trade at the same time, but there isn't an on ongoing war. Okay. Kim, can the Kimberley process really address these issues? Now, in Zimbabwe, they did suspend, in the Zimbabwe case, they did suspend the government or, or trade from that country, diamond trade from that country, for a period of time. But you can see that they're very, very keen to let Zimbabwe back into the, uh, the, the scheme. So it does raise fundamental questions about the role of states in managing this industry. Okay. And this brings me to the final point, which is that NGOs and ethical groups are now asking that this definition of blood diamonds and coffee diamonds be much be broadened, okay? And the diamond industry take on a much broader concept of the ethical trade in its own products, okay? It's asked for the Kimberley process to, to broaden the mandate to address human rights abuses, okay? And of course, this is where the diamond industry starts getting nervous because worker expo exploitation, would that include child children in Bombay polishing the diamonds, okay? Child labour. What about the environmental destruction? You see, you, you could saw you saw in Zimbabwe. It's just they dug a hole, and that's not that's typical of alluvial diamonds, right? 
violence associated with the whole trade, etc., etc. And the problem is, of course, is that because it's a voluntary process, um, primarily driven by states, whether or not this will be broadened um, depends upon the governments who are members of the Kimberley process. And some of the governments, like I would imagine Canada, etc., would have no problem with this. Other governments, such as Zimbabwe, would have major problems with this. So, this is uh, Naomi. Um, and that's, that's uh, but of course, highlights that Kimberley, the um, Kimberley process and blood diamonds remains a hot topic, but uh, that's it. Thank you.